These gentlemen coming down the aisles have a Bible for you. If you've come here this morning and you don't happen to have one, we would love for you to just get their attention. They will be happy to give you one. It's our gift to you if you don't have one to keep. Please feel free to take that, take that home with you, and that way you can follow along. And there is a marker in there that will take you right to where we're going this morning. If everyone can take their Bibles this morning, turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. On Wednesday nights in Community Institute, I've had the opportunity the last four or five weeks to be teaching a class called Discovering, it's part of the Discovering series, Discovering How to Share Your Faith. And admittedly, one of the things we talked about in this class, or we have talked about, is the reality that two of the most difficult things for us at times in our Christian life is having a solid, consistent, faithful prayer life, but also being a witness for Christ. Um, I look across this audience, and as we're going to see again next Sunday, we've seen a number of folks who have joined this church. Uh, We've only been here, my wife and I and daughters have only been here for about seven, eight months, and in that time we've seen a number of folks that have come and joined our church. But one of the things that we were talking about on Wednesday night in our class is overcoming some obstacles, and one of those obstacles is the ingrown church. Uh, A gentleman wrote a book back in the 1980s called outgrowing the ingrown church. In part, what that is talking about is that we can, as a church, get very comfortable with us, very comfortable with the folks that are here. And honestly, are we complaining that people are coming from other churches? No, it's not like, hey, you're from other churches, get out of here. No, we obviously are thankful for whomever God brings here. But if we, as a church, simply sit back and say, look what God is doing bringing people from other churches, we've started to lose why we're here. We've started to lose where we're supposed to be going. And for sake of a a simple title this morning, if you have in your program, you have an outline that's there, A Heart for the Harvest, and that is we can at times very easily start to become an ingrown church. We can easily be just a couple of steps away from being comfortable with us, being comfortable with the folks that have come, and forgetting that we have been given a mission, marching orders from Jesus Christ, that as the church, we are making disciples. We're not just saying, come on from somewhere else. We are coming to them with Christ. And yet this morning... One of the things I wanted to look at is when Jesus said something to his disciples that shocked his disciples, and it was leading into a time when he should have been eating lunch, they would have been eating lunch, and just in a short time we will be eating lunch, he said something that that surprised them, shocked them, and they didn't quite get it. And I think oftentimes we don't get it as well. We don't get what he's saying. So I'm going to give you a couple hints. There in your outline at the top, I have a couple of quotes from two preachers. One of them is Tim Keller. The other one is John Piper. Tim Keller wrote a very small book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. A very, very helpful little book. I think Pastor mentioned that in Discovering God Hour one of the Sundays. It's an exposition of 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4. And in that, what he's drawing out is the joy, the satisfaction that we come when we finally learn to forget ourselves. Here's what he says. He's talking about what a gospel-humble person is. Tim Keller says this in the midst of this little book. He says, True gospel humility means I stop connecting every, every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. 
the freedom of self-forgetfulness, that blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings, which means stop and think about even right now, some people may even be thinking about, I want to get to there, make sure I get my bagel, the ones that usually get cleaned out really quick. And we think about all these little silly things, all these things that go through our mind. And yet, what he's drawing out, what Jesus has shown us that learning to deny ourselves, forgetting ourselves, is when we find satisfaction, when we find that joy, when we find life meant to be the way God intended it to be. Well, here's further what John Piper said, and this was nearly seven years ago when he was reminiscing at the passing of his father. His father, grandfather, were both in ministry. His father was an evangelist. Some of you know John Piper in his books. He's been the, he was a pastor for more than 25, almost 30 years at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, St. Paul area. When he was reminiscing about his father and his grandfather, this is a part of what he said as he looked at their commitment to the Word of God, their knowledge of the Word. He said this, It is an amazing thing what happens to a life that is utterly devoted to an objective reality outside itself. Periodically, the experience is enjoyed of total self-forgetfulness and the wonder of that other reality. That other reality is the God of the Bible. In other words, what John was saying, what Tim was saying, and what we struggle to do is learn to forget ourselves in life and find that when we start to learn to do that by focusing on Christ, on God, that's when we start to find the greatest satisfaction, the greatest peace. And I think in part, that's what we have to see this morning is driven from this text what it's trying to get us to see. The reason Jesus wasn't concerned about drink and food and everything else that were natural needs at that moment, at that noon hour, was because there was something more going on with him that he intends to be going on with us. Now, I admit to you, when I talk about the heart for the harvest, we think in terms of these are buzzwords in church. I have a burden for the lost. I mean, you've heard that statement. And if you're like me, you've wrestled with at times why don't I have that burden for the lost? What is that burden for the lost? And, and here's, here's where I've got a couple fill-in-the-blanks here for you to just kind of say what it's not. So we don't think that, okay, I don't have that, so I'm messed up, so what do I do? Here's what I would say that, that that heart for the harvest, that burden for the lost, is not. It's not simply a burst of emotion. You've got the little fill-in-the-blanks there. This is your scorecard to make sure I'm staying on track. It's not a burst of emotion to see people come to Christ. Why do I say that? Well, if, you're, if you've lived for any length of time, you realize our emotions are like a roller coaster ride at Cedar Point. They're up, they're down, they're up, they're down. They're not like this. So on any given day, we can be like, I really don't care. All I care about is me and what is good for me. And if we go with our emotions and say, all right, the burden for, for the lost is I'm up here and I have this feeling for them, Satan's going to make sure he keeps our feelings down there, and we just forget about the lost. So it's not simply this emotional response. Secondly, it's not a one-time commitment to see people come to Christ. We can have special meetings and have people be challenged about this, and even people in past walking an aisle, making a decision, and saying, all right, I've made a decision to start sharing my faith with Christ. But just like decisions at camps, at church, at retreats, we have what's called the two-week syndrome. After a couple weeks, we're back to status quo. We're back to doing what we've always done. Or, number three is, it's not a willingness to start speaking boldly to others about Christ. You say, well, we are supposed to be, speak boldly. But what happens when we don't speak boldly, which is m most of the time for us? 
What happens when we don't? Do we think that we don't care about the loss, so then we just step back into passive mode? Well, I'm I'm tipping my hat as I step into this, and that is when we're going to look at this text here in John chapter 4, where Jesus, after having this extended conversation with the woman from Samaria, says something to his disciples that, quite frankly, they didn't get. And honestly, when we look at it, I don't think we fully get it, but we need to get it if we are going to have that, that heart for the harvest, if we're going to have a concern for the lost that makes us think about somebody, something other than ourselves. So here's the key point. If I'm going to drive home one key point this morning, and that's this, and I'm going to try to draw out from Scripture this very issue, and that is we're only going to have a heart for the harvest if we first have a heart for God. John chapter 4, look if you would, beginning in verse 27. John 4, 27, we have these words. It says, Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Verse 28, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, and here's where we're going with our text this morning. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? And here is the heart of what we're trying to draw out this statement this morning. Jesus says this, My food, says Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. We're looking at somebody, Jesus Christ, but showing those disciples and showing us today that in that moment, food, rest, drink of water didn't matter as much as doing the will of the Father. And I want us to try to understand from this text, try to see from this text, what it is that that Jesus was saying, what it is that we are missing in our lives as we wrestle through this. Because honestly, if I'm going to have a heart for the harvest, I've got to figure out what it isn't and then what it is. What it is that I need to be thinking from Scripture in order to be what God wants me to be. So let's simply start with going to verses 31 to 33. The disciples come back, and let me give you a little bit of the backstory. John chapter 4, at the beginning, it says that in verse 4, that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now understand, that was not a norm for the Jews. Uh, They did not want to take the shortcut. They would always take the long cut around Samaria because the Jews hated the Samaritans. So to say that he had to go through Samaria was highly unusual for his culture. Uh, It would be like people saying, I don't like Detroit, so instead of going I-75, I'm going to take 96 to 23 and go up to 75 because I don't want to go through Detroit. I'm going to go a different way. That's exactly what the Jews would do. But the the text tells us back in verse 4 that Jesus had to do this, and he had to do it because there was a conversation that needed to be had with this woman at Samaria. But as well, when we get to the, the, the first part of this chapter, we see that it was noon, that Jesus was tired, that he was thirsty, and he sits down to rest. We're talking about three basic needs of humanity. We get tired, we get thirsty, and we get hungry. All three of those things were coming together at noon, and Jesus' disciples, they leave. Jesus goes and sits at a well, and if we had time, we would look at it, but you know the story of the woman at the well. He has a conversation with her. He asks her for the drink of water, and if you look at the text, honestly, I don't know if he ever got the drink. 
Because it went from, can I have a drink of water, to the whole discussion, I don't know if they ever got a drink. And unlike us, when we want rest, we want to disconnect, which means leave me alone, I want to rest. Jesus, even though he needed to rest, he engaged. He engaged in this conversation with this woman. And obviously, since it was noon, he was hungry. But here's the, here's the reality for you and me. All of us have those basic needs of life. Rest, eating, and drinking. And here's the first point that I want to just draw out. A heart for the harvest is easily forgotten in those daily pursuits. When we're looking at what Jesus was doing, when we're looking at our lives each day, when we're thinking about how do I have a burden for the lost, how do I think outside of my own little itty-bitty world and think about people that I'm bumping into seeing in my life that need Jesus Christ? What is it that I've got to recognize? Well, I've got to recognize that the same thing that the disciples wrestled with is the same thing we wrestle with. And that is, as we go through the basic things of life, we forget about the needs of others because we're wrapped up in the little bitty things of life. Um, I've often said this, and this will be the last time I'll say this because I don't know how many times I've said it before. Uh, I, I, I've often said in ministry that we have in our culture what, we, what I would call burger theology. All right, McDonald's and Burger King have driven our lives in more ways than we realize. And not because we eat badly, that's part of it. But think about what McDonald's has had for, said for years. You deserve a break today. And then Burger King says, have it your way. Do you realize that's exactly how most of our culture lives and how much we have bought into that every day as well? We look at Jesus deserved a break. He was tired. He was busy. He was doing ministry. He deserved the break to sit and not have to talk and not have to get the drink himself, get a drink. I don't even know if he ever got the drink and to eat. But in the midst of all that going on, the basic necessities of life, Jesus put those aside for some reason that sometimes we don't understand. And honestly, the disciples didn't get it either. Now, obviously, marketing, if you're a marketing person, I'm not picking on marketing, maybe it's more advertising. Marketing is about getting us to be convinced of something that we need, even if we don't necessarily need it. And that's, that's Satan's strategy from all the way back in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, Satan wanted us to be convinced that there's something God's holding back from us, and we need it, so go after it. And once you eat the fruit, you got it all. But that's where we go through life, and Jesus did what was counterintuitive. And that is the natural response is to want to rest, eat, and drink. Jesus' response instead was the opposite of what we would naturally think. The disciples, we just read verses 31 through 33, the disciples come back from the city. They've got the food. They talked just like guys. Let's eat. Here's the food. Let's eat. Even thinking, and they, if you look at the text, the reason I read the verses before verse 31 is because they walked up when Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman. They heard what he said. They heard that he was introducing himself as the Messiah. She was going to go tell the rest of the city. But as soon as they're done, he's like, they're like, let's eat. It was like it didn't even connect. It didn't even phase them in that moment because they had one thing in their mind was, it's noon, it's time to eat, that's it. And Jesus did what was counterintuitive so different. And I, and I lead into chapter 4 with this. When you look at the disciples, I admit when you get to chapter 4, they really don't know what's going on. If you look at John chapter 1, 
When they're introduced to Jesus, there's three ways it describes them. They follow Jesus, they followed Jesus, they were following Jesus. The word disciple really has three different ideas in the New Testament. One of them is just literally you're following people. You're a disciple means you follow this crowd. Another idea of disciple is the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. Then the most important one that Jesus draws out from Matthew 28 is making disciples. Those are people who have put their genuine faith in Christ. They are a genuine disciple. Well, in John chapter 1, these guys are just following along. They, they, they recognize he is somebody that John the Baptist has introduced. You get to John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, Jesus goes to the, the wedding at Cana, and it says that the disciples were with Jesus. Then he goes to Capernaum, and it says that the disciples and Jesus' family were with Jesus. In other words, when you get through all these passages, first three chapters, they're just following along, but they don't fully understand what he's all about. They don't fully get it yet. They're seeing his ministry, they're hearing his ministry, and yet these disciples still don't quite have that heart for the harvest. They don't have that heart because their first words in the midst of Jesus having this conversation with this woman was, all right, that's done, let's eat. And admittedly, that can be us. That can be us in life. And he is saying that the heart for the harvest is when it comes to us, we have daily pursuits. And, and honestly... Think through our world. All right, I, I lived in China. We had the privilege of living there for eight years. And a landmass in China that is roughly the same area as America um, with less uh, agricultural ground but a billion more mouths to feed. Figure that. Now, you add that to the rest of the world's population, there is an incredibly large percentage of people in this world that are barely surviving on food and water on a daily basis. Yeah, they may get rest, but if they rest too much, they're going to die. You and I, we don't live with that. We haven't lived with that all our lives. Matter of fact, you and I, we have lives that are full, but they're empty at the same time. We can fill our lives with so many things and yet still be empty because exactly what Jesus is trying to draw from these disciples they wanted these basic things, let's eat, let's deal with it, let's go on. And yet for you and I, as we go through our life, the question is, as we're looking at our daily pursuits, are we letting ourselves in these daily pursuits, whatever they may be, are we letting ourselves just completely forget and disconnect from why we are really here? We're not really here just to walk in on Sunday, show up, do church, and go home. Used to be in churches, we said this Wednesday night we were talking, used to be in churches they'd have on the door going out, you are now entering the mission field. Great statement. But, you know, we can hit that sign on the way out the door and still forget when we walk out the door. And Jesus is trying to draw that out from these disciples and help them to realize they have forgotten what life is all about. But secondly, I would say a heart for the harvest isn't just easily forgotten in our daily pursuits. I would say secondly, a heart for the harvest is rooted in a devotion that doesn't come naturally. What is happening with Jesus is something that needs to happen with us, but it won't happen just because we, we emotionally decide to do this. We walk an aisle, we make a decision. It's something God is going to have to do in our hearts and lives. And only God can do. Only God can do this. You know, as I said, Jesus had sent the disciples off. They went grocery shopping. They come back to eat. But it's interesting that Jesus did with the disciples exactly what he did with the woman at the well. He needed a drink of water 
And from that drink of water that I don't know if he ever got, he has a discussion about the living water, and he shares the gospel. The disciples come back. They're talking about let's eat. And what does Jesus say in John 4, 34 when they're wrestling with this? He says, my food, my food, he says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So he took a basic need of life and he turned it into a springboard to teach a very powerful truth. Here's the powerful truth. Here's what he was wanting them to see and us to see. What will sustain and satisfy me most and satisfy you most is doing the will of the Father. Now, that's going to sound like get busy, start serving, start doing. And if that's what we conclude, then we miss the heart of what fueled what Jesus did. How do I say that? Well, Jesus is probably echoing in part Deuteronomy 8.3, and a verse that we've probably known since a child. He uses in his temptation. It says, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus' mission, Jesus' life was completely connected to the Father. Jesus' life was a devotion that was unlike any other person's devotion. But for you and me, how do we have this devotion? And how do you say, if Jesus said, my meat or my food is to do the will of the Father, how do you say it's not about simply being busy? I would say it's more about relationship. What I said at the very beginning, it's about our relationship with God. Let me just give you four things to rattle through in your mind to think about for this. When we look at the Old Testament, if you've ever walked through, maybe muddled through, uh, maybe struggled through the prophets, all right, the major prophets, the minor prophets, one of the common themes that comes out in the prophets is he goes back to the fact that, matter of fact, Isaiah says, the Lord is telling them, stop your feasts, stop your sacrifices, I don't want it, I'm sick of it. And you say, well, why in the world would God say that? Because the first few books of the Bible, he told them, do these feasts, do these sacrifices. And the point is, and the prophets over and over and over is, I'm not looking for them to do worship and just go through the motions. God's not looking for us to show up in church and just go through the motions and do church. He said, I hate those things. He says, I'm not looking for you to be busy doing all these things disconnected from relationship. It is completely connected to relationship. And that's why God could say in the prophets the opposite of what he had said in the law. I've said to do these feasts. Now I'm telling you, don't do these feasts. Don't pursue these things because what you've missed the point of, you're supposed to be pursuing me through those feasts, through those sacrifices. Another thing is John's prayer, or Jesus' prayer in John 17. I won't take time to look there, but in John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. And, and just listen to some of the words that he says as he's praying to the Father. He has this close relationship with the Father, and it says, I have accomplished the work you gave me to do. And then in verse 5, matter of fact, you're in John 4. Let's go to John 17. All right, go to John 17 just to see this with me. Look at how Jesus describes his relationship with the Father in this incredible prayer. Look, if you would, at verse 5. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Look down at verse 8. He says this in this prayer, I, For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Go down to verse 13. 
He says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. And then finally down to verses 21 through 23. He continues his prayer and he says that he's praying. Matter of fact, go back to verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What is my point? What am I trying to say? Well, if you read and look at that and think through that, Jesus is talking about that intimate relationship of him with the Father. Jesus and the Father. Jesus and the Father. We might say that Jesus' mission was to do X. And it was. He said, I am here to do the will of the Father. But what fueled that, what drove that, was his relationship with the Father. What moved him to do that was that intimate relationship with the Father that was perfect from all eternity and was continuing on. And that's what he was looking for in us as God's people. A third thing, Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, You remember when the disciples, Peter, James, and John, go up on the mount. Jesus is transfigured in front of them. Peter, being the kind of guy that doesn't know what to say, or when there's doesn't know what to say, he just says whatever, and makes a comment. And then you remember, Elijah, Moses are gone. The Father speaks, and he says of Jesus, This is my busy son, hear him. Okay, and I saw a couple heads shaking their head like, No, that's not what it said, all right? So at least I know a few of you are still awake, all right? You see, we could think that Jesus saying in John chapter 4 that my meat, what satisfies me is to do the will of the Father. So we conclude then, we jump on and we do 20 things in the church, we get busy about serving God, and therefore that's what's going to create this burden. And I would say that's not what he's saying. You see, the Father said, this is my beloved Son. It was all about that relationship. And honestly, when you and I trusted Christ, if we have trusted Christ, it wasn't so that you can be another person to jump in and do a lot of stuff because God needs people to do a lot of stuff. He has a mission for us. But first and foremost, it's always been about relationship, and that is the heart of what fuels it when it comes to sharing the gospel. That you and I, Jesus summed up the Ten Commandments. Matter of fact, he summed up the whole Bible in two statements. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. Period. You want to take the Bible and close it and stick with two things? Stick with those two things. And yet, if we don't do the first, if we don't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we won't do the second. We won't love others. We'll be so wrapped up in our own little world. That is the point. That's the point that Jesus wants to drive home is his passion, his willingness in his weariness, his hunger, his thirst. When the disciples came running back, like, here's the food, let's eat. And Jesus said, my meat, my food, what satisfies me is to do the will of the Father, was not saying, I got to be a type A personality workaholic. That was not it. That's not what fueled him. What fueled him was that relationship with God that has to be that same relationship with us. If we don't have it, let's just put it this way bluntly, if we don't have that growing relationship with God, we will never have this so-called heart for the harvest or burden for the lost. We'll try, 
We'll try to work it up. We'll read another book about evangelism. We'll read a couple other books about God and everything else. But at the end of the day, we won't have it because ultimately it comes to spending that time with God. I'll admit to you, uh, one of the things that happens with people who go as missionaries to another country Here's what can happen. I, I knew when we went to China in August of 2006, I knew that I was not going to be the next Hudson Taylor. For one thing, I was an old guy going. You know, he was a young guy going. I was old by comparison. And I knew that uh, there's only one Hudson Taylor. But every missionary, when they go to the mission field, does think this way. And God has to change a part of this. They do think, hey, I'm going to go to the mission field and do something for God. I mean, we think that way. Who doesn't think that way? You don't just pack up and pack up 10 bins and haul them to China and all these things and get there and go, you know, I just wanted to go because I got some really cool people and some interesting language and some very interesting food. That's what it wasn't what it was all about. But I could think I'm going there to do something for God. You know what God had to show in a very painful sometimes, unsettling, maybe even confusing sometimes, was that... That can be a good thought, but it can also be defective. It can be defective thinking because ultimately I had to see that in the midst of going there to serve, there were things that God wanted me to learn about myself and about him. Myself that needs to change and my view of him that needs to grow. More than doing stuff for him. There's plenty of people doing stuff for him, but if I don't see that, if I don't recognize that, if I don't respond to that, then I'm just going to muddle along doing it and not seeing the harvest the way God intended for me to see the harvest. And that's what Jesus is drawing out for us here. He wants us to see that what moved him, what motivated him, was not simply just, I'm going to do something for God. That's not a bad thought, but it's a potentially defective thought because God first wants our love for him, our relationship with him. Which takes us to our third thing this morning. Third and final. Look at verse 35. Here's what we didn't read after Jesus made the statement. Go back to John chapter 4 if you would. After Jesus had said, my food is to do the will of him that sent me, and we want to make very clear that's not just simply getting busy doing a bunch of things. What Jesus said then in verse 35 is the second part of that prong. And that is, he said, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. This could have been an idiom from their day. It seems what Jesus was saying was, most likely this was December for them. And their harvest was going to be in four months. And he said, agriculturally, we would look around and go, all right, it's about four months to harvest agriculturally. But spiritually, he is saying to them at this time, what I am saying to you is there's an urgency that you need to have about the harvest and an awareness to see that the harvest is now. Not four months, not four weeks, it's now. And, and that's where you and I wrestle. That's why I would say the third thing this morning is a heart for the harvest results in a new view of the people that God has put in my life every day. A new view. And that is I'm looking at them as the now harvest, not the someday harvest, but the now harvest. You and I, honestly, we can read books on evangelism. We can read books on sharing the gospel, read books on how to do that better. But at the end of the day, if we don't have this relationship with God, this walk with God, this drawing nearer to God, 
we won't take that next step, verse 35 is drawing us to do, and that is be aware of people around us, that they are people, and, and we talked about this in our class Wednesday night. Think about what we do in, in our culture, even as Christians. All right, so here's just, we got this annoying neighbor, but God has put us in that house with that annoying neighbor. So what do we do? Build a fence. Build a bigger fence. Now I don't have to deal with that annoying neighbor. But God put us there to be with that annoying neighbor because they don't know the Lord. Now, yeah, easy to say because I've had those annoying neighbors. You've had those annoying neighbors. But those annoying neighbors are people that Jesus says he wants us to see them differently. There's an urgency. There's an awareness. There is, as we've talked about in our class on Wednesday night, the question and the nagging question is, do we know our neighbor's names? The house behind us, the house beside us, the house across the street, do we know our neighbor's names? And the answer to that question leads to a second question. If we don't, I know at least this. We're probably not praying for their salvation because we don't even know their names. Now, that's easy for me to say because I knew them, so I came in here prepared because I've known my neighbor's names. And I can still remember my neighbor. I don't know what's happened since we went to China. My neighbor, I won't say which one in case you ever come to my house, but one of my neighbors had a huge problem with alcohol. I remember multiple times helping the poor guy get in the door because he could not get his front door open uh, that bad. Well, something's cleaned up, but he doesn't know the Lord yet. And so I still pray for him, pray that God will give an opportunity to share the gospel with him. But that's where us being alert, we may have a miserable coworker that we work with. We may have a boss that's a pain in the neck. We may have a boss that we wake up on Monday going, oh, man, I wish I could get a different boss or a different coworker or a different compartment, department person I'm working with. You're in all these little cubicles. But God's put us there to be urgently aware of that. And if we don't, if, if we don't have that same heart that Jesus has, we'll be like the disciples. How can I fix this? I want food, I want peace, I want comfort, I don't want annoying neighbors, I don't want annoying co-workers, I want this gone. Well, here, here's where I pull it all together, if I can, this morning. You have in your notes something about William Borden, and I have alluded to him before. When it comes to you and me and the gospel, sharing our faith in Christ with others, ultimately, sharing our faith in Christ with others means... We will never have that burden until we see, like John Piper has said in one of his books, God is the gospel. The good news, yes, we think of we get to go to heaven, we're forgiven by God, we walk the streets of gold, but the question I think he asked in that book is something to the effect, what if all your friends and all your family and all these other things weren't there and you showed up in heaven and all there is is God? Are you going to be okay with that? Because that's what the gospel is. The good news is we get God. The good news is we've got everything. But the bad news is we get so busy with so many other things in life that we're wrapped up with those things, we're full of things in life, but we're emptied in our heart, so we've got nothing to draw from to want to share this with other people. Well, I've mentioned William Borden. This is probably the last time I mentioned him. I think I've mentioned him here before. When I was in China, I read the biography of William Borden, book is called Borden of Yale. And those of you that are old folks like me, if I say Borden, you're like, oh yeah, is that the milk cow people? Yeah, Borden Dairy, all right? 
The, the Borden family was a wealthy family. They were millionaires in the early 1900s, but it wasn't from cows and milk. It was from silver mining in the, in the state of Colorado in the early, eight, late 1800s, early 1900s. So they made their millions in the early 1900s from mining silver. But obviously, they weren't just all about money. They had a, a faith in Jesus Christ, particularly the mother did, and that highly influenced her children. William Borden was one of four children. When he was 16 years old, uh, he graduated from high school. Uh, he got a graduation gift, travel the world. 16 years old, back in the early 1900s, you travel the world. And there were no planes. Uh, it, was a, it was a slow journey. He traveled the world. But God used that in William Borden's life to not just allow him to see some cool things around the world. God used that to drive him to see with an, an awareness of people around him that there were people who needed Jesus Christ. People who he wanted to go back to share Jesus Christ with. William Borden then began to go on a trajectory that everybody thought he was nuts. He was part of the Borden family. He's going to go to Yale. Now, understand Yale, Harvard, uh, Princeton. These were all schools started to train people for ministry. Now they're Ivy League, crazy expensive schools. But they were still training people for ministry. And he said, I'm not going into business. I believe after going on that journey as a 16-year-old young person, I believe God wants me to be a missionary to China. So that's where he began to plan. He began getting involved in ministry, and there were so many people, including even his own father, saying, you're throwing your life away. It's a waste. And if you've ever read anything about William Borden, there's three statements that have been quoted, and I have this at the, in your notes there. The statement, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Here's where these statements were found in his Bible at these junctures of his life. No reserve was when he gave up his fortune, he gave that up to pursue missions. He knew that when he was going to go that direction, that meant I'm done with the Borden millions because I'm not going that direction. That's when he wrote in his Bible, no reserve. No retreat was when his own father said to him, all right, if this is what you're going to do with your life, you're not going to work at this company anymore. You're done. But no regrets was right before he died at 25 years of age, before he made it back to China. Here's why. When he was in China, uh, and still to this day, on Western China, heavily influenced by Muslims, you've got all the, the stand countries, uh, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, all these stand countries that are all Muslim. Western side of China is very heavily influenced by Muslims. His burden was not only to go back to China to share the gospel and prepare for that and do that, but to go and minister to the Muslims who were Arabic in nature. So that meant he's going to have to learn Arabic and Chinese to do that. On his way to China, he stops in Egypt to study Arabic to prepare. While in Egypt, he contracts spinal meningitis and dies in Egypt, never makes it to China. That was his legacy. 25 years of age, didn't make it. And there would be people that would say that was a waste. What was that all about? You know, you look at guys like uh, William Borden, David Brainerd, who died at 29 years of age, William Murray McShane, who died, uh, Robert Murray McShane, who died at the age of 29 years. I think with each of these three guys, the heart is what this pastor said. If you have in your notes at the bottom there, I put some quotes in here because I lose people in longer quotes. I always wondered who went with William Borden when he went on that journey around the world. I didn't know until I saw this quote later. 
One of the people that traveled with William Borden was his pastor, uh, Reverend Walter Erdman. He had traveled with William on that journey when he was 16 years old and saw what God did in his life. But here's what he said. Here's was his take on William Borden after William Borden had died. He said this, I have been thinking more and more since the news came that the length of time God permits us to stay here is not related to a certain amount of work he wants us to do so much as to a certain closeness of relationship to himself he wants us to attain. Some of us who are less useful, perhaps, are allowed to live on longer that we may learn more and be perfected in understanding. If you read that with thinking, that's kind of like a really big ouch statement. So we're here longer because we didn't get it yet. We're here longer because we still need to grow in that relationship with God. God took a William Borden off the earth because he had this close relationship, and it wasn't about what he accomplished. It was about that relationship. He took a David Brainerd off this earth, and he had this incredibly close relationship, and more has been accomplished in missions and for the gospel of Christ by David Brainerd's life after David Brainerd was dead. More missionaries in the 17 and 1800s went to the foreign field because of reading the biographical uh, story of David Brainerd. Now, my point is this. We, as a church, as a body of believers, need to have a, an awareness and an urgency about the folks around us who need Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we're here today, because somebody did that for us. And yet, when I look at William Borden, when I look at his life, what this pastor said that, quite honestly, again, think through what he said, because if you really think through it, he's saying, all right, so the rest of us are sticking around for a long time because we still need to grow in our relationship with God because we haven't been. Now, that doesn't completely play out fully, but I would at least say this. We need to think about that. We need to think long and hard because the only way we will have that same mindset as Jesus Christ did, my food which satisfies me is to do the will of the Father, didn't mean God's going to be pleased because you're the busiest person at Community Bible Church. Because you can be the busiest person and be the most disconnected from God. That happens. What does make a difference is when we have that relationship with God that is growing, prospering, and in that satisfaction, we can't help but want to tell people about Jesus Christ because what fuels it is our love for God and our relationship with him. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning, we readily admit and we readily pray, forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for making life be about ourselves. We may look at people in society and think, well, we're a step or two above them. We're a step or two better than them. We're not as full of ourselves, but yet we are. We're so easily full of ourselves. We're so easily distracted by our own little world. And yet, Father, as we admit here this morning that we can be so filled with things and so empty in heart when the things, the busyness of life are not what you intended for us to find satisfaction in. It's what your son had satisfaction in and wanted his disciples and those of us who would be his disciples to find that satisfaction is you. That's why the psalmist said, whom have I in heaven but you and there's none upon the earth that I desire beside you. Lord, we want that to be true. 
but we need your help for that to be true. And we would pray that if there's someone here this morning that doesn't even know what it means to be your child, that they would see that Jesus came so that they could have that relationship, a relationship that is full and complete and only through Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to close in a song, but I encourage you, you know, as a church family, um, we can walk away and think, all right, that's what I need to do, and then we run to bagels, we run to a lot of things, and we're done. I would ask you, pray this week that God would help you to think, what do I need to do in my relationship with God to take that a step further? And if you're here this morning and you would say, I don't know what it means to be a Christian like you're talking about, please see one of us afterwards. We have a half an hour of fellowship together. We would love to show you what it means to follow Christ.